Thanks as always for having me on, Kevin. I am the Skipper Dude, proud Broncos fan since 1984. So today, I thought we'd take a quick break from talk of this month's NFL draft and discuss everybody's absolute least favorite subject. Is that dental hygiene? Nope. Is it toe fungus? No, worse. Tom Brady. Uh, of course, Tom Brady was in the headline of the news a week ago when he pulled one of the better April Fool's Day tricks in recent memory. First announcing his retirement on Twitter, and then coming back later and, well, yeah. Um, but, but what was significant about this little prank, and I don't see it getting much attention, is the fact that his decision to play in 2019 in my opinion at least, is likely a game changer as far as the Tom Brady legacy is concerned, and probably not for the better. Or is it? That's what I wanted to explore today. So guys, Tom Brady will turn 42 before the 2019 NFL season kicks off this fall. To put that in perspective, Peyton Manning is only 43. Rob Gronkowski, who just retired from the NFL about three weeks ago, is only 29. Six NFL head coaches for this coming year. Sean McVay, Cliff Kingsbury, Kyle Shanahan, Matt LaFleur, Adam Gase, and Matt Nagy are all younger than Tom Brady. Vic Fangio is more or less twice as old as Brady, but that's a story for another day. And I'm going to fess up here that back in 2016, I made a bit of a stir by basically guaranteeing right here on Mile High Report that Tom Brady was going to hit the age 38 wall technically at age 39, by the end of the 2016 season. And of course, two Patriots Super Bowl victories and a wild Super Bowl loss later, I'm still pretty well eating crow on that one. But, but, but I believe that when Tom Brady effectively announced, in a fun and backward sort of way, that he was returning for the 2019 season, he took a step over a certain threshold that every great quarterback comes to, and that is the threshold of his quickly declining physical skills. For me as a fan, my most enduring visual memories of most legendary quarterbacks typically come down to two. Number one, their greatest moment, and number two, their last notable moment, how they went out. For John Elway, of course, they, they more or less meld together with the famous helicopter play during Super Bowl 32, and then the this one's for John moment following Super Bowl 33, with the Duke, of course, riding off into the sunset. Peyton Manning was all not that much different. So many great years for in Indianapolis for Peyton, but only one Super Bowl win in Super Bowl 41 over the Bears. And then, of course, the capstone of his Broncos career in Super Bowl 50 over the Panthers. But if you think about a guy like Joe Montana, my, my enduring memories are, of course, the famous touchdown pass to Dwight Clark in the NFC, you know, 1981 NFC Championship game but also of his hanging his head on the sidelines as a Kansas City Chief, broken down and pretty well washed up at age 38. Much the same for Joe Namath, rejoicing with his finger in the air after winning Super Bowl III, but then also sitting on the sidelines as the Los Angeles Ram with a towel over his head washed up and hanging on for too long. Or Brett Favre, who was almost painful to watch in 2010 at age 41, with the Minnesota Vikings. Many of these legendary quarterbacks simply hang on too long and it tarnishes their, their legacy. If you watch Tom Brady play last year, it was pretty clear that Father Time is catching up with him. Father Time is undefeated. He never loses. And while I wouldn't say that Brady's skills in 2018 had deteriorated as badly as Peyton Manning's in 2015, 
they weren't a whole lot, a whole bunch better. And for me, at least, it, it's hard to see Brady's ceiling in 2019 being much better than 2015 Peyton Manning. But I suppose with a legendary mastermind of a head coach and a defense that is good enough to win games on its own at times, perhaps they'll find a way in 2019. But personally, I'm just not seeing it. I think this dynasty is on its way out. In fact, I go as far as to say that, that this New England Patriots dynasty, the, the, the greatest in the history of the NFL, with nine Super Bowl appearances, six Lombardies since 2002, is starting to remind me of a bunch of punk kids who are borrowing daddy's convertible and driving it out on the prairie, top down, standing in the passenger seat, arms out wide, but with the fuel light on and 40 miles to the next gas station. And when they finally run out of gas and break down, oh baby, don't be expecting any sympathy from the rest of the NFL. And also don't expect Belichick to go through the pain of breaking in a new quarterback either. Gronk got out, Brady didn't. Brady had the opportunity to go out on top, like, like Elway and Peyton Manning before him. But with his tweet on April 1st, he's chosen not to. I, I know I didn't hear about Brady's April Fool's joke until after the reveal, but my first thought when I heard it was, oh, Tom, you should have retired. And I mean, as much as I hate the guy because I'm a Denver Broncos fan, you can't help but appreciate what he's accomplished as an NFL quarterback. I'm not here to trigger the greatest of all time debate. I'll leave that to greater football minds than mine. But Tom Brady is already the most accomplished NFL quarterback of all time, and there really isn't even a close second. There may never be a close second. So why put that at risk? Why play into your 40s? Why be driving daddy's convertible when it finally runs out of gas in the middle of nowhere? And, and as a guy myself who's in his early 50s, I've given this quite a bit of thought over the past week. And I think of what it comes down to is a matter of life's priorities. For guys like John Elway and Peyton Manning, their legacies, their reputations, their images meant everything to them. And they've worked their careers around that. For guys like Favre and Tom Brady, I don't think any of that matters. I don't think Tom Brady cares if his last moments as an NFL quarterback are not his best, if his last second on an NFL football field is the last second of a winning Super Bowl. I don't think he cares if he holds on a half season too long. I think Tom Brady is going to soldier on and play into his 42nd year simply because he loves the game. He loves the mental challenge of a brilliantly crafted Belichick Josh McDaniels game plan. He loves stepping out onto the field on Sundays and strapping on his helmet. It's in his blood. It's what he was born to do. And I think he wants to squeeze every last ounce of talent out of his soon-to-be 42-year-old body. And honestly, Broncos fans, I respect that. I'd even go as far as to say I admire it. So, here's a toast to NFL legend Tom Brady. Tom, may your days be long and full of good health. May you play until you're 45. May your quarterback rating be below 50. And may the Patriots go 1-15, you cheating bastard. Kevin, back to you. Thanks as always for having me on, Kevin. I am the Skipper Dude, proud Broncos fan since 1984. So today, I wanted to take a deeper dive into the next week's draft and talk about the possibilities of the Broncos drafting a defensive lineman at number 10. Namely, of course, I'm talking about Quinnen Williams, the dominating 300-pound tackle from Alabama, or Ed Oliver, the lightning-fast D-lineman from Houston. Now, realistically, both of these guys are likely to be off the board when the Broncos pick at number 10, 
most especially Williams. But I'd like to explore whether the Broncos should make an effort to draft one of these two, perhaps even trading up in the first round to get Williams, because I really believe there are great arguments for and against doing just that. And rather than advocating one way or the other, I thought I would do something I rarely do here on Broncos and Bratwurst, and I was gonna, I'm going to advocate both ways, not as a means of helping you make up your mind, but just as some food for thought. So let's start with the reasons against drafting a defensive lineman at number 10, or perhaps higher, next week. And to do that, I'd like to move across town and talk, of all things, about the hollowed-out shell of the baseball team formerly known as the Colorado Rockies and the impact on them of playing at altitude. So going back to 1993, when the Rockies came into existence, people from around baseball knew that playing at altitude was going to have several different impacts for the Rockies to deal with. They had about a 50-year history going back with the Denver Bears and the Denver Zephyrs, so they basically knew what was coming. Batted balls were going to fly farther, curveballs were not going to have as much bite to them, and pitcher fatigue was going to be an issue to contend with. Now, the flying baseballs was not that hard to deal with. Just build Major League Baseball's biggest outfield, right? Curveballs were a conundrum, really, until Bud Black, of all people, proposed that you can throw curveballs effectively at altitude so long as you bury that curveball at about 18 inches behind home plate. It was a revelation that's changed how the Rockies' pitchers approach pitching, and it's been a great success. And the pitcher fatigue factor which is very, very real, can be handled by carrying an extra long reliever, somebody who can just chew up innings after a bad start instead of wearing out your entire bullpen. So, as the Rockies construct teams now and into the future, I count five things they need to emphasize that other teams don't. Number one is a left fielder who has the defensive range of a center fielder thanks to the massive outfield at Coors Field. Number two, pitchers who can consistently bury their curveballs at the low end of the strike zone. Number three, a catcher who is adept at catching those, carried, uh, those buried curveballs, even at the expense of his being a good hitter. I, I really believe that this is why the Rockies chose to keep Tony Walters out of training camp this year and DFA the, the much better hitting but defensively weak Tom Murphy. Number four, two long relievers who can give you three, maybe four innings out of the bullpen a day or two per week. And then number five, position players who are at least adequate defensively because the extra relief pitcher is going to cost you a bench player. With the extra pitcher, you lose the luxury of being able to have late inning defensive replacements, um, pinch runners, things like that. But all in all, as you can see, roster construction is different for the Rockies than for other teams because of the altitude. But the differences are really fairly subtle. Okay, so now let's move back to the Denver Broncos. If you're like me and you've lived or you're living at altitude, you've learned that from a cardiovascular perspective, altitude is something you can get used to. So much so, obviously, that Olympic athletes like to train at altitude to help their stamina closer to sea level. So for an NFL team, the altitude is not going to have a huge impact on skill players like wide receivers and cornerbacks. If you watch the Broncos and Raiders play in Denver and Oakland in the same year, you may see some instances of skill players leaning over and grabbing their thigh pads to catch their breath in the fourth quarter in Denver thanks to the light air. But at the end of the day, you're not going to see the quality of their play suffer much, if at all, late in games at altitude. Rather, just like the Rockies, fatigue hits, where, where fatigue hits the pitchers the hardest. In the NFL, history and I believe science 
has shown us that fatigue hits the fat guys hardest, the linemen. And really, if you've been watching the Broncos for 35 years as I have, you know the fatigue most definitely hits the defensive line harder than the offensive line. After all, it takes more physical exertion to rush a quarterback or tackle a running back than it does to stop a defensive lineman or open a running lane. Which means that when you're constructing the team to win in Denver, you need depth on the defensive line. You need six guys. If you're playing a 3-4, you need six guys that you can just shuttle in and out all game long and keep them fresh for the fourth quarter. And I think John Elway and Vic Fangio both tend to agree with me here. John Elway likes to build his defenses around edge rushers and cornerbacks. Fangio likes to build his around his middle linebacker. For both of them, I think they just want a defensive line that is deep. Every guy is roughly league average or slightly better. And that you're not spending draft capital or salary cap dollars on a position that can be spent better elsewhere. So, the answer is no. Don't trade up for the beastly Williams or take the fast but undersized Oliver at number 10 if he's available. Okay, so now, let's look at the other side of the argument. Yes, we should take either Williams or Oliver next Thursday. That argument goes this way. If you want to build a true NFL championship caliber team, you need to be freakishly good at one component of the game and slightly or or average or slightly above average everywhere else. Look at the 2015 Denver Broncos. They are freakishly good at defending against the pass, thanks to three lockdown corners, at least when Bradley Roby was on his game, and a ferocious pass rush. Quarterback, the offensive line, running back, tight ends, linebacker, safeties, they were all more or less average. In fact, Peyton Manning was probably something less than average in his final year. So, or, or look at the Patriots dynasty. They are freakishly good at getting checkdown receivers open in space. Thanks partly to the offensive design genius of Bill Belichick and the offensive coordinator who shall not be mentioned, but also because Tom Brady is the best ever at crafting his post-snap reads to find that open receiver. Every other component of the, the, the Patriots dynasty, except Gronk when he was healthy, is basically just average, but it's been enough to create a 15-year NFL dynasty. So with the Broncos running what amounts to a 5-2 defense with, with um, their, their outside linebackers on the line of scrimmage, you can line up Vaughn Miller, if you can line up Vaughn Miller, Bradley Chubb, and Quinnian Williams on that defensive front, you could very well have the kind of explosive defensive line that would be almost impossible to defend, to defend against, short of running quick-hitting three-step drop patterns all day long. That would be freakish. Just get us to average everywhere else. Flacco, the offensive line, Sutton, Freeman, Lindsey, the secondary linebackers, and you're talking about a team that may be ready to make a run deep into the playoffs. Granted, the altitude may restrict a guy like Williams to play 40 plays a game rather than you know maybe 45 or more that he might get elsewhere, but I think it's a price you have to pay to get a guy with Williams' dominating talents. So yes, if it costs you some draft capital, if it costs you a players like Emmanuel Sanders, absolutely move up into that number three position and grab Quinnen Williams. With Kyler Murray and Nick Bosa likely to go number one and number two, he should be available. Quinnen Williams is going to be a beast anywhere he plays, it appears, but he'd be an unstoppable force with the Broncos. Teams already have to game plan for Miller and Chubb. Miller, Chubb, and Williams would simply be too much for them to scheme around. Add some press man coverage with your cornerbacks 
and, and a strong safety who can also pound the line of scrimmage. And you may have your 2015 defense all over again with a quarterback who is not nearly as close to the end of his career. So, Skipper Dude, what do you say? You got a nice no argument and you got a nice argument and a yes argument here. Which one do you think is going to win out Thursday? And, and personally, my answer, I'm going with yes. I don't think it's how Elway and Fangio are going to go, and I'll be okay with it if they don't. But if you're looking for a quick win that gets you back into contention in 2019, as Elway and Fangio are uh, very much appear to be doing, then I really believe Quentin Williams is your guy. Forget the price, just go get him. Kevin, back to you. Thanks, as always, for having me on, Kevin. I am the Skipper Dude, proud Broncos fan since 1984. So today, I wanted to take a deeper dive into next week's draft and talk about the possibilities of the Broncos drafting a defensive lineman at number 10. Namely, of course, I'm talking about Quinnen Williams, the dominating 300-pound tackle from Alabama, or Ed Oliver, the lightning-fast D-lineman from Houston. Now, realistically, both of these guys are likely to be off the board when the Broncos pick at number 10, most especially Williams. But I'd like to explore whether the Broncos should make an effort to draft one of these two, perhaps even trading up in the first round to get Williams, because I really believe there are great arguments for and against doing just that. And rather than advocating one way or the other, I thought I would do something I rarely do here on Broncos and Bratwurst, and I was gonna, I'm gonna advocate both ways, not as a means of helping you make up your mind, but just as some food for thought. So let's start with the reasons against drafting a defensive lineman at number 10 or perhaps higher next week. And to do that, I'd like to move across town and talk of all things about the hollowed out shell of the baseball team formerly known as the Colorado Rockies and the impact on them of playing at altitude. So going back to 1993, when the Rockies came into existence, people from around baseball knew that playing at altitude was going to have several different impacts for the Rockies to deal with. They had about a 50-year history going back with the Denver Bears and the Denver Zephyrs, so they basically knew what was coming. Batted balls were going to fly farther, curveballs were not going to have as much bite to them, and pitcher fatigue was going to be an issue to contend with. Now, the flying baseballs was not that hard to deal with. Just build Major League Baseball's biggest outfield, right? Curveballs were a conundrum, really, until... Bud Black, of all people, proposed that you can throw curveballs effectively at altitude so long as you bury that curveball at about 18 inches behind home plate. It was a revelation that's changed how the Rockies pitchers approach pitching, and it's been a great success. And the pitcher fatigue factor, which is very, very real, can be handled by carrying an extra long reliever, somebody who can just chew up innings after a bad start instead of wearing out your entire bullpen. So... As the Rockies construct teams now and into the future, I count five things they need to emphasize that other teams don't. Number one is a left fielder who has the defensive range of a center fielder thanks to the massive outfield at Coors Field. Number two, pitchers who can consistently bury their curveballs at the low end of the strike zone. Number three, a catcher who is adept at catching those, carried, uh, those buried curveballs, even at the expense of his being a good hitter. I really believe that this is why the Rockies chose to keep Tony Walters out of training camp this year and DFA, the, the much better hitting but defensively weak Tom Murphy. Number four, 
two long relievers who can give you three, maybe four innings out of the bullpen a day or two per week. And then number five, position players who are at least adequate defensively because the extra relief pitcher is going to cost you a bench player. With the extra pitcher, you lose the luxury of being able to have late inning defensive replacements, um, pinch runners, things like that. But all in all, as you can see, roster construction is different for the Rockies than for other teams because of the altitude. But the differences are really fairly subtle. Okay, so now let's move back to the Denver Broncos. If you're like me and you've lived or you're living at altitude, you've learned that from a cardiovascular perspective, altitude is something you can get used to. So much so, obviously, that Olympic athletes like to train at altitude to help their stamina closer to sea level. So for an NFL team, the altitude is not going to have a huge impact on skill players like wide receivers and cornerbacks. If you watch the Broncos and Raiders play in Denver and Oakland in the same year, you may see some instances of skill players leaning over and grabbing their thigh pads to catch their breath in the fourth quarter in Denver thanks to the light air. But at the end of the day, you're not going to see the quality of their play suffer much, if at all, late in games at altitude. Rather, just like the Rockies, fatigue hits where, where fatigue hits the pitchers the hardest. In the NFL, history and I believe science has shown us that fatigue hits the fat guys hardest, the linemen. And really, if you've been watching the Broncos for 35 years as I have, you know the fatigue most definitely hits the defensive line harder than the offensive line. After all, it takes more physical exertion to rush a quarterback or tackle a running back than it does to stop a defensive lineman or open a running lane. Which means that when you're constructing a team to win in Denver, you need depth on the defensive line. You need six guys. If you're playing a 3-4, you need six guys that you can just shuttle in and out all game long and keep them fresh for the fourth quarter. And I think John Elway and Vic Fangio both tend to agree with me here. John Elway likes to build his defenses around edge rushers and cornerbacks. Fangio likes to build his around his middle linebacker. For both of them, I think they just want a defensive line that is deep, every guy is roughly league average or slightly better, and that you're not spending draft capital or salary cap dollars on a position that can be spent better elsewhere. So, the answer is no. Don't trade up for the beastly Williams or take the fast but undersized Oliver at number 10 if he's available. Okay, so now, let's look at the other side of the argument. Yes, we should take either Williams or Oliver next Thursday. That argument goes this way. If you want to build a true NFL championship caliber team, you need to be freakishly good at one component of the game and slightly or, sl or average or slightly above average everywhere else. Look at the 2015 Denver Broncos. They are freakishly good at defending against the pass, thanks to three lockdown corners, at least when Bradley Roby was on his game, and a ferocious pass rush. Quarterback, the offensive line, running back, tight ends, linebacker, safeties, they were all more or less average. In fact, Peyton Manning was probably something less than average in his final year. So, or, or look at the Patriots dynasty. They are freakishly good at getting checkdown receivers open in space. Thanks partly to the offensive design genius of Bill Belichick and the offensive coordinator who shall not be mentioned, but also because Tom Brady is the best ever at crafting his post-snap reads to find that open receiver. Every other component of the, the, the Patriots dynasty, except Gronk when he was healthy, is basically just average, but it's been enough to create a 15-year NFL dynasty. 
So with the Broncos running what amounts to a 5-2 defense with with um, their, their outside linebackers on the line of scrimmage, you can line up Vaughn Miller, if you can line up Vaughn Miller, Bradley Chubb, and Quinnian Williams on that defensive front, you could very well have the kind of explosive defensive line that would be almost impossible to defend, to defend against, short of running quick-hitting three-step drop patterns all day long. That would be freakish. Just get us to average everywhere else. Flacco, the offensive line, Sutton, Freeman, Lindsey, the secondary linebackers, and you're talking about a team that may be ready to make a run deep into the playoffs. Granted, the altitude may restrict a guy like Williams to play 40 plays a game rather than you know maybe 45 or more that he might get elsewhere, but I think it's a price you have to pay to get a guy with Williams' dominating talents. So yes, if it costs you some draft capital, if it costs you a players like Emmanuel Sanders, absolutely move up into that number three position and grab Quinnen Williams. With Kyler Murray and Nick Bosa likely to go number one and number two, he should be available. Quinnen Williams is going to be a beast anywhere he plays, it appears, but he'd be an unstoppable force with the Broncos. Teams already have to game plan for Miller and Chubb. Miller, Chubb, and Williams would simply be too much for them to scheme around. Add some press man coverage with your cornerbacks and, and a strong safety. You can also pound the line of scrimmage, and you may have your 2015 defense all over again with a quarterback who is not nearly as close to the end of his career. So, Skipper Dude, what do you say? You got a nice no argument, and you got a nice argument, and a yes argument here. Which one do you think is going to win out Thursday? And, and personally, my answer, I'm going with yes. I don't think it's how Elway and Fangio are going to go, and I'll be okay with it if they don't. But if you're looking for a quick win that gets you back into contention in 2019, as Elway and Fangio are uh, very much appear to be doing, then I really believe Quentin Williams is your guy. Forget the price. Just go get him. Kevin, back to you. Thanks, as always, for having me on, Kevin. I am the Skipper Dude, proud Broncos fan since 1984. So today, I figured I really didn't have much of a choice in topics to discuss. Like everybody else, I thought I'd weigh in on this Thursday's draft with some analysis and my predictions. But as we often do on Broncos and Bratwurst, I'm going to try to look at things from a little different perspective. So rather than do a deep analysis of the likely best player available for the Broncos at number 10, I wanted to lay out five principles that I believe will drive John Elway's and Vic Fangio's selection process and dictate who they will or won't take on Thursday. So here we go. Principle number one, the Broncos team is not one player away from returning to the Super Bowl. Now last week I suggested that the Broncos should consider trading up to the number two or the number three pick and try to grab Quinnen Williams, the massive defensive lineman from Alabama. The rationale was that Williams would be an even bigger force with the Broncos than with other teams, being flanked by Von Miller and Bradley Chubb on a five-man front that would be almost unblockable, and that to be a Super Bowl threat like the Broncos in 2015 or the Patriots every year under Tom Brady, you'd need to be freakishly good in one component of the game and average everywhere else. Now, moving up to get Williams would give the Broncos that freakish component to their game, the difficult part would be establishing themselves as average everywhere else. More than anything, this is an organization that is still paying the price for some breathtakingly bad drafts between 2013 and 2017, 
and is currently well below average at inside linebacker and tight end, below average on the offensive line and arguably at safety, and really average at best at wide receiver and quarterback. They just can't afford to give up the kind of draft capital that it would take to move up. So yeah, you can establish that freakish defensive line, and this, but this is the NFL, which is all about advanced scouting and adjustments. Team would ju- teams would just dink and dunk you all day with quick-hitting flat patterns designed to neutralize that defensive line, and life would probably be fairly miserable. So even though it's fun to ponder, ponder that dream defensive front, it's not a place that I see Elway and Fangio going, nor realistically really should they. So, so we can probably rule out tra- training up for a guy like Quinnen Williams or the premium edge rushers like Nick Bosa and, and Josh Allen. Okay, so on to principle number two. Defensive-minded head coaches are going to be inclined to spend their premium free agent dollars and draft picks on offensive talent. Th- this was a concept I laid out in depth shortly before Broncos hired, the Broncos hired Vic Fangio, but I think we're already starting to see it play out. With, with free agency first, as the Broncos signed two solid cornerbacks, Kareem ja- Jackson and Bryce Callahan, but really made their biggest splash by making Juwan James the NFL's highest-paid right tackle. And I tend to believe we're going to see this play out again on Thursday. So let's talk about another big name that has been mocked at Denver number, at, at number 10 fairly consistently, and that's LSU linebacker Devin White. Now, I know I won't be the least at bit disappointed if the Broncos choose Devin White. In fact, a little like uh, Quinnen Williams, he'd probably be a better player in a Vic Fangio, Ed Donatel defensive scheme than he would be pretty much anywhere else. But here's the problem. Let's look at Devin White on a scale of 1 to 10 as a linebacker. I think the consensus is that he comes in as a 9 talent and potential-wise. And with some great coaching from Fangio, Donatel, and company, perhaps they can even elevate him to be a 9.5 kind of a guy. But if you're Fangio, you're probably thinking you can get a day two guy or day two talent like a Mac Wilson or a Trumaine Edmonds, who may have seven or eight out of ten talent, but you can coach him up to a nine. You'll get better value from your pick, and then you use that number ten overall pick somewhere else. And I think the same concept goes for Ed Oliver and the other defensive linemen who appear to be popular mock draftees for the Broncos. I just don't really see Fangio sitting at number 10 and going defense and letting the offense go unattended. If Fangio goes defense at number 10, I think you can be pretty sure that he's seeing something extremely special in that player. Okay, now to principle number three. And this is speculative on my part, but I don't believe that John Elway and Vic Fangio are looking at the Broncos with just a three-year horizon. Or rather, the length of both John Elway's and Joe Flacco's contracts. So I do believe that they're willing to take a quarterback with their first pick. First of all, though, I just want to go on record as saying I believe Kyler Murray has bust written all over him. Yeah, he's a monster talent, but he's undersized and appears to have some potential temperament issues. I really believe that Cliff Kingsbury is coming into the NFL and immediately going all in, in a poker sense, in his very first hand. Assuming he's after Murray, and I'm not exactly sure what kind of game he's playing if he's not after uh, after Murray, then I'm just seeing this as an RG3 type of pick, perhaps even descending toward Jamarcus Russell territory. If Kyler Murray is available by some fluke at number 10, then pass. Pass hard on him. But but let's take a look at the other two quarterbacks who may be good targets in number 10. And that's, of course, Drew Locke and Dwayne Haskins. 
Now, when you read Drew Locke's scouting report, he really comes off as kind of a poor man's John Elway. And to me, it really brings some interesting psychology to mind, pondering whether John Elway is going to be inclined to draft a young, poor man's John Elway. But also a similar scouting report to Paxton Lynch. But, but while the talent and upside are there, and apparently without Paxton Lynch's character issues, Locke just doesn't jump off the page as being anything particularly special. He seems like a guy kind of like a Joe Flacco who may work a playoff miracle at some point or another, but not really a guy you build a 15-year plan around. I know if Elway drafts him, I'll be good with it, but I just don't honestly see it happen at number 10. Which brings up Dwayne Haskins, who is not quite as physically gifted as Locke, but appears to have more of the intangibles. Von Miller went on social media recently and said that if Haskins is available at number 10, then he should be the guy. Now, honestly, that's all I really need to hear about the guy. I really believe Haskins is the guy. I've heard a lot about him wearing a John Elway jersey to his interview with the Broncos, which is kind of cool, but honestly, it doesn't really say that much. Now, if Haskins had worn a John Elway jersey to Oakland when he interviewed with Chucky, now that would have been something. But but anyways, he's dropping in the mock drafts of late, which could make him available, or will it? I actually have a theory here. I tend to believe that Haskins is falling in the mock drafts because he's the most coveted quarterback in the draft. I'd say there are maybe six or more teams after him, and I believe teams like the Raiders and Giants are faking disinterest in him to discourage other teams from jumping ahead of them and drafting Haskins. In fact, my theory is that is that the New York Jets at number three are trying to trigger a, a bidding war that... that uh, it will allow them to move back and get in a nice draft haul because somebody else is going to want to jump ahead of the Raiders and take Haskins at number three. But the bottom line, I'm entirely convinced that Haskins will be off the board by the Giants at number six, possibly even sooner. Okay, so let's move on to principle number four. As experienced coaches who are participating in their first draft and their new positions, you can be sure that Vic Fangio and Rich Rich Gangrello are working hard to put together a draft board, probably harder than they've ever had in their lives. It seems to be a great coaching staff that John Elway, John Elway has put together. There's a ton of energy right now in Dove Valley. and The novelty of a new regime, a new scheme, and a new day for the Broncos, my hunch is that the Broncos front office has put together a monster effort to develop this draft board. And if I'm right about that, then what it tells me is that Elway is likely to have a draft board together that will go maybe even 300 players deep or more, and not only primed to make some great two day two and day three picks, but also be in position to potentially find this year's Chris Harris Jr. or Philip Lindsay after the draft is over. Okay, so finally, principle number five. This Broncos team has a ton of needs still. As I alluded to earlier, they go into this draft with only two edge rushers, with Todd Davis, but no real textbook Vic Fangio inside line, linebacker. Depth concerns at safety. They're very below average at tight end. Need some help on the offensive line. Knee receiver depth, and, and not to mention a legitimate backup quarterback. Bottom line, they need quantity more than they would need one shiny toy type of a pick. So, speaking of tight ends and shiny toys, how about TJ Hawkinson, the two-way tight end out of Iowa, to address perhaps the Broncos' greatest area of need? I don't think he's necessarily the next Rob Gronkowski, but this is a pick that would very much shore up a major position of need. 
in a position that is growing in prominence in, in NFL offenses. And it's another pick that will stand behind if that's how Elway goes on Thursday. I mean, if this guy can be your Travis Kelsey or even your Zach Ertz, I think, I think you grab him. But, but here's the issue with Hawkinson, I believe. This is a solid draft for tight ends. With Hawkinson's Iowa teammate, Noah Font, as well as Alabama's Irv Smith Jr., likely available in the late first round or early second round. I just don't know that you need to use that top 10 pick on the number one tight end in the draft when you have some solid tight end talent stacked up behind him. So I'm really honestly not seeing Hawkinson at number 10. Okay, so prediction time. Here is how I, the Skipper Dude, see John Elway and Vic Fangio setting up for Thursday's draft. First, of course, I, I believe the trading up is an extreme long shot, maybe for Dwayne Haskins, but I doubt it. Elway just can't afford to be giving up that kind of draft capital with the talent covered still relatively bare. And number 10, I think you have four guys, Quentin Williams, Nick Bosa, Josh Allen, and Dwayne Haskins, who, if they fall to you, just don't ask any questions, go grab them. But, but let's be real. All four of them are going to be off the board by number 10, realistically. And then I think you have another four guys who, who I believe are borderline picks at number 10, who I don't really believe to be worthy of the number 10 picks. But I'll stand by Elway and Fangio if they do it. Namely, Devin White, Ed Oliver, Drew Locke, and TJ Hawkinson. Any of these guys would have to be something special to take them at number 10. But perhaps Fangio and Team, and, and team Elway are seeing something that the rest of us aren't, and they believe that one of these guys, or even somebody I'm missing here, is a special type of a talent. So I believe that you're going to see Elway trade back into the teens, assuming that he gets a good price for it. He's going to pick up some extra draft capital and then see if one of that second foursome, okay, White, Oliver, Locke, or Hawkinson, or perhaps even Devin Bush, is still on the board. Assuming not, and I tend to believe that they'll all be off the board by the teens, then I think Elway trades back again and out of the first round, and that we as Bronco fans are going to come away empty-handed on day one. This will call back to, to memory really the second best draft of, of John Elway's career as a general manager for the Denver Broncos. If you remember back in 2012, the Broncos traded back into the second round, and they ended up with a really solid pick in, in, their, in, in the round, second round with Derek Wolf. And then also that year, 2012, they, they picked up um, they picked up Danny Trevathan and Malik Jackson as well. So it was a really, maybe not as good as the 2018 draft, but it was one of, of Elway's better drafts. So I think he's going to pattern himself after that one. But hopefully we're going to be happy, even though we're going to be empty-handed on day one, if my prediction comes true. I think we're going to be happy with day two and day three and the draft hall and excited the Broncos are going to start building on the stellar 2018 draft and refilling the overall talent and depth of the franchise. That's what's needed right now. Kevin, back to you.